we are going to be uh, continuing on Matthew 16. All right, so Matthew 16, we're going to look at the first 12 verses. First 12 verses of Matthew 16. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand. I'm going to read it for us. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them, left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or is the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You may be seated. And God bless the preaching and the reading of his word. I want to open with a question. Um, and the question is this. Have you, have you ever had a problem interpreting a situation? So have you ever had a problem interpreting a situation? What's going on? It may be um, you find yourself at an event or a game or a TV show, and you and a friend see something, and you, see, you both see the same thing, but you're interpreting it two completely different ways. One says, this is what's going on, and the other one says, no, 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 no. That's not what's going on. This is what's going on. You are looking both at the same thing, and yet you see it from completely different angles or perspectives or understanding. Well, recently, um, one night, my wife and I, we watched a movie called The Summit. The Summit. It's a movie about extreme mountain climbers um, who wanted to climb the mountain K2. All right, so apparently, they said this in the movie, that it was like climbing Mount Everest, but it was like uh, the, the harder version of Mount Everest. Okay, hard to believe. I know, like, you know, Mount Everest is like walking down the beach or something like that, but to true climbers, K2 is probably one of the biggest feats that anyone can accomplish. And so we were watching this movie, and if I remember correctly, it was about the few uh, days in which this uh, large group of people, about 28 climbers, were seeking to climb and to summit, um, which means get to the top, and then come down safely of K2. And out of these 28 climbers, 11 of them, if I'm remembering it right, 11 of them died trying to climb this mountain on one day. All right, so the odds are not very good. They said in general, I think, in the movie that one in four climbers that try to summit K2 die. Okay, and so you must know going in that this is a very difficult and um, deadly thing that you're doing, right? And so as, we're, as the movie's going and the events are leading up to this climb and what went wrong with the climb itself, um, it's kind of what you expect. They talk about all the, and they show it in the movie, they show the steep cliffs, 
the ice that's hanging and falling, tons of obstacles that could kill you at any second, right? Any second you could die from any number of things that are going on. Well, see, what was happening was on, on their descent, they say that's the deadliest time, things started getting confusing, right, for these guys. Communication started breaking down. They were spending too much time in what was called the dead zone uh, because they explained that uh, the brain, basically, uh, when it has less and less oxygen, the more time you spend in this dead zone, the more it messes your head up. You start seeing things in different ways. You start simple things, like even putting your foot in front of another becomes hard because the oxygen deprivation in your brain is causing you to interpret things totally different. And so you could have one guy thinking that one thing is going on and another guy thinking another thing is going on. And, and the biggest problem was after these uh, various disasters started happening, one person was doing some simple maneuver and he fell down the mountain. He's gone. Another one, um, after another one, after another one, people are dying. People are stranded. People are separated. And the biggest problem was following this event was trying to interpret what happened. They're trying to gather from these first um, eyewitnesses and those that were climbing what was going on. What happened? Why was it such a disaster? And people had an interpretation problem. One person said this, and one person said that, and another person from their perspective said that this was going on. See, there was an interpretation problem in that climbing event. Well, in our text, we have two stories before us in which Jesus and his interactions with two different groups of people, they were also interpretation problems. They saw things the same way or the same thing, but they interpreted it totally different ways. They had an interpretation problem concerning who Jesus was, what he was teaching, what he came to do. And so today we're going to see that Jesus gives us two very clear warnings. And he's tying them together and giving us kind of the big idea of our text today. And it's this, a call to listen to the warnings of Jesus. So we have here two warnings, but together they're calls to listen to the warnings of Jesus. And we're going to look at these each individually. So if you guys look at verses 1 through 4, the first warning is this. Beware of asking for signs. Beware of asking for signs. We just read a few minutes ago verses 1 through 4, which tell tell us of an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees and Sadducees. We learn in verse 1 that they are trying to test Jesus. And really we know from here in Matthew and the other parts in Matthew, but also the rest of the Gospels, that when they come to try to test Jesus, they're really trying to trap him. They're trying to set him up for failure. And so we know from the start that this is not an honest or genuine question from the heart. It's not someone coming up to Jesus and saying, Hey, Jesus, I really have a question that I'm wrestling through, and I need your help on this. That's not what's going on here. They are coming to test him, to trip him up, to set him up for failure. And so what's their request, the Pharisees and Sadducees? It's this. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Verse 1, they wanted a sign from heaven. Now let's not be too hard on these two groups, these two groups of people here. If you're human and you're honest with yourself, just like me, at one point or another, we all wish for a sign. We all wish that God would give us a sign from heaven. We've all been in that place if we are human. Maybe it's during a difficult trial. Maybe it's a a time of suffering or persecution. 
Maybe it's a time of unbelief or doubt. Those, you know, what's been called the dark nights of the soul. Maybe we're doubting in the goodness of God or, or even we're doubting in God at all. Like that he's even there or that he cares. And we ask God for a sign. I bet we've all been there at one time. And have you ever stopped, though, and asked why, why a sign? Why do we want a sign? Why do we need a sign? And I thought about that, and I think it's because it's something we want to taste. We want to touch it. We want to see it. We want to sense it. We want to experience it and grasp it more directly. And when our faith is weak and our unbelief and doubt is strong, we want God to part the sea right in front of us. We say, God, I'm not going to believe you right now in this moment unless you part the sea right here in front of me. And then we say, oh, we'll believe if you do that. Right, right. Just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And if you and I are anything like them and like the disciples, we actually do the opposite. What do we do? We ask for more signs. God gives it to us. We ask for more proof and more evidence, denying what's in front of us. And this is what's happening to the people here in this story. So let's go back to verse 2. Jesus answers them through giving them kind of a quick weather forecasting 101 class, right? He says this in verses 2 and 3. He answered them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So what he does there is he's giving the example. He says, one, you have the sign of the weather. What's the sign for the first one? The sky is red in the evening. So what's the logical interpretation that he says? Oh, you're going to have fair weather, right? So he has a sign, and then he has an interpretation. He gives another one. The sky is red in the morning. Okay, that's the sign. And then the interpretation, it's going to be stormy. So Jesus' simple conclusion to these guys is, look, you understand the sign. You understand how to correctly interpret the sign of the weather. But here's the problem. And here's the rub. It comes in verse 3. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So he's just pointing out simply there's a breakdown here. He gives them a lesser example that says, hey, you can do this, so why can't you do this? He continues on in his explanation of the problem. In verse 4, he says this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to, you, or given, uh, to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So God gives this very harsh and vivid language to say that you don't have a sign problem. He's telling these guys, you don't have a sign problem, meaning a lack of signs in order to show them that I am who I say I am. Jesus saying that to them. You don't have that kind of problem. You have an interpretation problem. You have an understanding problem. It's not that I haven't given you signs. It's not that there haven't been signs in the past or the present or there will be signs in the future, but it's you have an interpretation problem. Just look at, like those climbers in the opening story, these two groups of people had an interpretation problem. They were not getting it. Jesus was pointing this out to them. Guys, you're not getting this. But notice what Jesus says. He says, no sign will be given except for what? Verse 4 says here, except for the sign of Jonah. 
Now, at first glance, you're kind of like, what is Jesus talking about here? That was my question. And so I kind of had to go look it up. One commentator pointed me back to earlier on something that, um, I guess, Santo preached on in Matthew 12, 39 through 42. And you can turn there if you want to. But basically, Jesus is talking about the sign of Jonah and what that is. So what's going on is that Jesus is using what's called a, a typology example. Jonah is a type of Christ, or he's an example that points to a greater or more perfect example. And so he's comparing Jonah to Jesus, the sign of Jonah, right? So Jesus is pointing out not only that, but he's pointing out the differences between the audiences of Jonah's time and the audience in which he is now experiencing in his own time. Jonah's day, they repented finally and accepted the message. But in Jesus' day, what happens? They reject him. They reject the message. They're different in that way. And he's making a comparison between the two. Uh, D.A. Carson, he explains it this way. The first point of comparison between Jonah and Jesus is that they were both delivered from death. The second point of comparison is the different responses of the hearers. The men of Nineveh repented. The people of Jesus' day did not repent. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's making an intentional comparison between him and Jonah. You know, as I was studying this section, it just hit me that in this comparison, Jesus is giving himself as a sign to these people, to these Pharisees and these Sadducees. Jesus is the sign that he's giving to these people in that moment. He himself, the Pharisees, they asked for a sign. They wanted more proof and more evidence but what better uh, sign could, they, could Jesus give them than giving them himself? They wanted more, but Jesus said, I'm standing here right in front of you, essentially. He says, I, I, I am the sign. Yet they still wanted more proof, more evidence, more signs. I love what one pastor wrote on this. He said, the leaders do not need signs by Jesus. They need to see Jesus, his presence, his life is God's greatest sign then and now. They need to see Jesus. They don't need another sign. So what about you and what about me? Are we looking for signs today? Maybe some drastic out-of-this-world sign in which we say, God, you got to give me this before I dive all in. Before I say, here is my life, take it, do whatever you want with it. Are you seeing and interpreting the signs uh, rightly that God has already given you, just like the, those that he gave the Pharisees and Sadducees? Or are you misinterpreting the signs, wanting more, asking, demanding that um, for more than God has given in his wisdom in this time? Are you testing and taunting Jesus? See, I think there's an example here for us. There's, there's a lesson here for us to learn. Maybe it's not, you know, uh, we're, we're asking for a sign so that we can believe in Jesus. Maybe we already are believing in Jesus. But still, we wait for things. That God, if you do X, then I will be obedient. If you give me a sign, if you bring some fruit to our church plant, then I will live faithfully. Then I will live all in. Then I will be faithful in sharing my faith with those around me. Or then I'll be getting in the Word daily and, and seeking your presence. But only if you do X, 
if you give me a sign. Because I think at least principally here, the same thing is going on with these people demanding a sign from Jesus. And if that's us today, testing or taunting or even just demanding a sign from God, I think we need to listen to the warning that Jesus has for us here. And as your pastor, I want to plead with you that you would do business with God even this morning. Maybe even come to a place of repentance, asking for God's help. I know that we all struggle with unbelief, every single one of us, at one time or another. We all struggle with doubt. Maybe it comes for one reason, for one person, another reason, for another person. But we all struggle with doubt. Maybe even this week. Maybe it's an event that happened or a question that came up in your mind. And so we're struggling with unbelief. And I think what Jesus is telling us here through this text is, look, you need to see me. You need to see Jesus. Remember what Pastor Doriani said. Basically, you don't need to see more signs. You need to see Jesus, God's greatest sign. You need to fix your eyes on him. Ask God to help you rightly interpret what he's already doing in and around you, what he's done in his word, in your life, and in his son, Jesus Christ. Pray that God would help you to trust him, to love him, to obey him, and to serve him, especially in these hard times. This leads us to the second warning found in the the last half of our text today, verses 5 through 12. If you want to look there, the the second warning is this, beware of the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 5, I think what's going on here is the disciples are catching up to Jesus after the feeding of the 4,000 and they realize something. They realize we forgot to bring bread. Jesus says to them this simple statement in verse 6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he gives his disciples a simple command, right? Beware of this leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But what's the problem? They don't get it. Jesus gives them a, a simple command, and what Jesus says, and, 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 sorry, what Jesus says is, he says, Beware of these things, but they think that he is talking about bread. They start talking about one another. They said, they, we forgot bread. What happened to us? We were supposed to bring bread, right? But they really don't get it. And so Jesus has to go for a more blatant, frontal uh, kind of approach to communicating the truth that he is trying to get across. And so what does he do? Verse 8, But Jesus is aware of this said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I I did not speak about bread? When someone says to you, oh, you have little faith, that's not something to be flattered by. Right? That's That's a rebuke. He's calling these people out. He's saying, you of little faith. And he's astonished that they are thinking about bread. So much so that he questions after question after question to get them to realize, guys, I'm not talking about bread. See, Pastor Santo and I were talking about this text recently, and uh, he kind of gave an example that I thought was really helpful. He kind of said basically that Jesus was treating them like little school kids, right? He was taking them back to elementary school. 
and kind of asking the question, okay, now kids, how many baskets did you gather after feeding the 5,000? And they kind of, you know, put their head down and give some sheepish answer, you know, oh, Jesus, it was five, you collected five. And how many feeding, you know, or how many did you gather after the feeding of the 4,000? Oh, Jesus, well, it was this number right here. And it's, then it's after that, it's as if Jesus gets loud again and in their face, how in the world did you come to the conclusion that I'm talking about bread? It's not about bread. It's not about bread. He took them to elementary school, asked them these questions and said, look, do you really think that this was about bread? He has to get real basic, real um, blatant, real in their face and say, guys, it wasn't about bread. Now, sometimes it's hard to discern kind of a tone from a text, especially when the author doesn't give us a whole lot of clues as far as the tone. And I'm not quite sure about it in this sense, but I think it's safe to say that by the amount of questions, the one after another after another, as, as if Jesus is interrogating them, the language he uses and the other contextual clues that Jesus is expressing some sort of frustration with his disciples for not getting it. I think that's pretty clear. Jesus simply ends almost by saying the exact same thing that he said in verse 6. But in verse 11, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And you know, it's at this point where the light bulb comes on for the disciples. The aha moment. Oh, that's what he was talking about. Right? Verse 12 says this. Then they understood, right? The fog is clearing it's rolling out, and their understanding that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he's talking about this false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's the warning. So let's take a deeper look at this warning that Jesus gives here. Now that we've established what the warning is, it's a, it's a warning about the teaching, not about physical bread. So let's go back to verse 6 where the warning is given in its full expression. And as you're looking there, I want to read what one of the commentators said about this. He said, The best background is found in 1 Corinthians 5.6 and Galatians 5.9. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough, as only a small amount of yeast spreads into the dough and virtually takes it over. So the false teaching of the leaders spreads into the nation and turns them against their Messiah. So Jesus is using just a simple illustration, a common thing that everybody in that day would understand almost, and shows the danger of false teaching of these two groups of people. I remember when I was a kid, my mom would make um, bread from a bread machine, right? Uh, She didn't do the whole oven thing. She kind of had this bread machine that she would make bread from. You pour the ingredients in. And, and then, you know, you just leave it in there. It makes bread, pop the top, eat it, right? And so one of the things I remember is that one of the ingredients was yeast, right? You had a little can of yeast that you kept in the refrigerator, something like that. You just put a little bit in, but you'd be surprised what that little ingredient did. But if you forgot it, what that ingredient didn't do, right? And sometimes I, I think maybe my mom in a hurry would forget that ingredient. And instead of the bread being this tall... It would be bread like this, and it would, you, you could barely cut through it because it was like a brick, right? And that's the time when you would take it, and you would open the trash can. You would throw it in there, hopefully. Or if uh, you had a bad day, 
um, you were being very disobedient, mom would say, this is your dinner, right? And you cut it up and that's what you eat. Um, but I remember how much that little ingredient, one small ingredient makes one heck of a difference. You miss that, you miss everything. Or you put that in and it affects everything. And so this is a negative example here. This false teaching can affect and infect everything. Little small teaching can infect the whole loaf of bread. And it's through this illustration that Jesus gives this second warning. Simply watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven and yeast, the same thing. So one more time from that same commentary, he says this, the two warnings are similar and build to a crescendo. The disciples must always be wary and vigilant in the face of such pernicious doctrine. Be wary and vigilant in the face of such pernicious doctrine. And so what I think that Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples, but also to us, is that this is serious. That this, this false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is deadly and dangerous and wrong. Thus the need, as the NIV says, to be careful or to be on your guard. I was thinking about, you know, sometimes we have um, bumper stickers on our cars. We see bumper stickers, right? And I was trying to think of a bumper sticker for this one. The only thing I come up with is false teaching kills. All right, so a big bumper sticker in your car that says false teaching kills. That's the message that Jesus is trying to get across in this moment, that false teaching is dangerous. The big question then is what is this teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus is warning his disciples and us about? What is this warning specifically about in this context? Because in the most immediate context, we don't find a very specific details or instructions about what this teaching is. It just says to watch out. Watch out for their teaching. Verse 12. Now I have to be honest here. It kind of tripped me up for this week when I was studying this. I knew that the Pharisees, I knew a lot of things about the Pharisees and Sadducees. I knew that they were called out in the scriptures for teaching legalism or a, a workspace righteousness way of thinking. I knew that the Sadducees had a, a problem with the resurrection. But I was wrestling in my mind that with this question, is this what Jesus was most directly talking about when he warned of their teaching? And I kind of went back and forth and thinking about this. And um, this week, um, me and Santo and Caleb got to go to a conference uh, in Philadelphia and um, it was a conference about basically how to read and study and apply our Bibles, right? It talked about staying on the line of Scripture and, and really saying, what is Scripture saying to us? Let's not go above or beyond. Let's not add to or take away. Let's understand certain verses of the Bible in their context in which they're found, whether that's the sentence in which it's found or the paragraph or the book or the Bible as a whole. And we were at this conference, and it was a really helpful reminder to us is how to study the Bible. And it wasn't just for—it it was for preachers and pastors, but it's the, the application is for everybody who studies their Bible. And it's good for us to go to things like this and to, to hone in on our skills as pastors. You guys, as, as the congregation, want us to go to these things or should want us to do that. But as I was doing this, um, I, I remembered again some of these principles, and I started asking that question that I just asked in light of these things that we learned or relearned at this conference. So again, in the context before and after today's passage, what's going on? 
Well, as I studied it, it seemed like Matthew was clearly trying to point out that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king, the true king. And in fact, the whole book of Matthew is trying to pound this out. And specifically to a Jewish, um, the original audience, to a Jewish people say, look, this is the Messiah. This is the true king. This is your king. Believe him. He is who he says he is. And so if that's kind of the big picture of the book, and in our passage today, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they aren't getting that. And next week we're going to see that the disciples are starting to get this. Peter gets this. Santo's going to preach on that next week, that Peter confesses, you are the Christ. So he gets it. But the Pharisees and Sadducees at large are not getting it. There's disconnect. They don't see this. And so coming back to my question, which teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is Jesus warning us about? I think that because of the, uh, the immediate context and also the, also the context of the book, is it's pointing us to the fact that these two groups denied that Jesus was the Messiah, the true king, that he was who he says he was. And this is why that teaching is so dangerous. Because if we follow the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees here, what will happen is we will miss Jesus. We will miss the gospel. We will spend an eternity away from God and his people in heaven. See, it's true from the rest of the, the book of Matthew and, and in large part the, the whole Old Testament, or New Testament sorry, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they missed this. They missed Jesus in a tragic, tragic way that not only affected the rest of their lives, but affected the rest of their lives eternally. They did teach legalism and a host of other doctrines, but the worst thing that they did was they missed Jesus, their true Messiah. They missed him altogether. And I think this is why Jesus was calling us and calling them to listen to his warnings concerning the things we found in our passage today. Beware of asking for signs. Beware of demanding for signs. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Two two, um, warnings that we desperately need to listen to as a people today. We need to respond to. But the greater warning that ties these two things together is beware of missing Jesus. Beware of missing the king of it all. Because when we demand for more and more signs to prove to ourselves Jesus is who he says he is, when we demand those things, we miss Jesus. When we believe the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, or you could say any false teaching at large, what happens? We miss Jesus. You know, as I studied these two texts and these two stories, I asked another question. I said, is Matthew trying to compare the disciples to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in any concrete way? Because both are lacking understanding. Both are lacking interpretation. They're interpreting things the wrong way. So what's going on? Is Matthew trying to compare the disciples to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What sets them apart? What sets these two groups apart? Is it grace? Is it a heart changed by seeing Jesus? I think it is. 
I think it's the grace of God that opened up their minds and opened up their hearts that as, as, as dumb and as stupid as and as hard-headed as these disciples were, Jesus came into their life. The Holy Spirit opened up their mind, pulled away the veil that, that, that existed there, pulled away that unbelief, that doubt, so that they could see Jesus for who He is, that they could believe in Him, that they could have life now in His name, that He could change them and transform them into the people that He created them to be, and that they would be with Him for now and forever in eternity. They were changed by Jesus. There wasn't anything special about the disciples. We can say that from the text, right? The disciples have no reason to brag here, nor do the Pharisees and Sadducees, just like it's nothing special about us. So my prayer as we close here is really that, the, that God would grant each of us the grace like he did to his disciples to see him, to treasure him, to believe in him, to listen to his warnings, and to believe that he is who he says he is. And that we wouldn't miss Jesus. That's the warning here. Don't miss Jesus. And I think that's a, a very helpful warning for whether we are far away from God and rejecting Him right now, or whether we are, are in the faith for 20, 30 years. We've been believers for 20 years. Still, that again, that we would not miss Jesus. I think that's what the text is screaming to us. That's the warning here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your truth. Um, God, we thank you that we get time on a Sunday, uninterrupted time that we can come and learn from your word. God, that you have put people in our lives to teach us the word, to explain it to us, to help us to apply it to our lives. And as basic as these two warnings are, they are so crucial for us to get. God, help us to be aware and to beware of asking for more and more signs than you and your wisdom have already given. God, we pray that you would help us to beware of the false teaching of these Pharisees and Sadducees. It hasn't gone away. It's still here. People are still denying you, demanding for something more, saying that you aren't who you say you are. It may not be the same way that the Pharisees or Sadducees were talking about it, but today, all across the world, in our places of work, where we live, where we interact, where we do life, people are telling us that you are not who you say you are. And yet we, we pray for the grace to believe that you are who you say you are, that that is not true, that we're not going to listen to that false teaching because that false teaching will kill us. It will kill us now and forevermore. It will kill our families and it will kill our kids. It will kill our friends. It's dangerous. So please help us to listen to you, Jesus. To see you, to love you, to obey you, and to follow you. Thank you for this simple yet profound um, truth in your word today. We pray that you would help encourage us as we go out to the glory of your name and for our good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Peter Eck, Assistant Pastor at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. 
If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.